Today on the show, some pregame thoughts on the Seahawks' Monday night football home tilt against the New Orleans Saints. I'll tell you why it's way too early to give up on the season and consequently why tonight's game is so big. We'll talk some Seattle Mariners. Big news today. A Mariner legend, the Mariner legend actually, is back in the fold. I'll explain that and give you some early thoughts as we get close to the offseason. And my thoughts on everything that's happened in Pullman the last 10 days. Rolovich is out. A new coaching search is underway. I'll outline what I think the best case scenario is for finding a new leader for the Cougar football team. The Emerald City Sportscast is up next. Welcome to the Emerald City Sportscast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, analysis, and opinions from Dan and his guests on the Mariners, Seahawks, Kraken, and more. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. The the puck in the corner being tied up. Now kicked free by Wenberg. Maybe one last chance for Seattle. And as Dunn shoots, scores! And that was the first ever home goal scored by the Seattle Kraken at Climate Pledge Arena after beginning the season with five straight on the road. That was a Saturday night. Vince Dunn will forever be the answer to that trivia question. Um, the Kraken lose to Vancouver 4-2. to They drop to 1-4-1 on the season. They take on the Montreal Canadiens Tuesday, tomorrow night. Uh, the Canadians come in at one and five, so a good opportunity there for the Kraken. And listen, for those of you who are saying, hey, I thought they were supposed to be good. I thought they were set up to win in their first season. A um, couple things to keep in mind. First of all, five straight on the road, no chance to practice. Um, lots of lots of line changes. Yanni, Yanni Gord just joining uh, uh, the team. So lots of shuffles in those top lines. Um, that's going to change. Uh, Saturday's game was the first of four straight at home. And then uh, the month of November, very friendly to the Kraken. They get six straight home games between the 11th and the 24th. So uh, lots of home cooking. That crowd was electric. Uh, Can't wait to check out that arena. I'll be doing so on the 7th of November, going to see a show there. Um, And already uh, talking to somebody about going to a game as well. Um, An opportunity has presented itself. Um, Also, I am going to be watching the Kraken in Las Vegas on... Tuesday the 9th, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, if the 7th is a Sunday, the 9th is a Tuesday. So, you know, if any of you happen to be making that trip or you're going down to Vegas or you're going to be there during that time, uh, DM me and let's uh, let's have a beer and play some penny slots and, uh, and, and see some hockey. Look, I'm not going to be talking a lot about the Kraken on this show because it's been a long time since I've followed hockey. And so um, I'm not going to be the most educated fan, but I'll tell you, this is what I love about having a team. You've heard me say this before that that I'm a, I'm the kind of guy that has to have a local team to attach to. I'm not. We all know those people who uh, are Laker fans and uh, Red Sox fans, and you know, take your pick. They kind of pick and choose teams that are traditionally good, right? I have to have a home team. That's why I'm not an NBA fan right now. Don't have a team to follow. Not going to adopt one from another market. Um, and as much as I fell in love with the game of hockey while I was covering. Uh, the Tri-City Americans of the WHL when I was working in the in the Tri-Cities many years ago. Um, no team to follow here. 
uh, on an NHL level. So I'm still playing catch up on names, the rest of the league, the, their roster, the Kraken's roster, uh, first and foremost. Um, but here's what I love. The second I start watching games, you get back into it again. It kind of reminds me of the Olympics, right? A lot of us do this. Uh, I'll become a soccer fan even during the Olympics or the, or the World Cup. Same with hockey. Um, and, you know, a couple of games into it, man, you're, you're yelling and screaming. You know when to react. It comes instinctively, and, uh, and it's a lot of fun. So I'm watching these games. I'm getting goosebumps. I'm excited to have the team here. Still got a lot to learn about the team itself. So, um, you know, I'll keep you up to date on them and, and give you thoughts as the season progresses. But uh, the in-depth analysis may take a while. Um, so let's talk some football. Today is Monday. It is a rainy, blustery, dreary Monday, but we get home football under the lights on a national stage, and that's always fun. Uh, second straight national spotlight for the Seahawks uh, coming off the Sunday night football game. Uh, playing the Saints tonight at home. There's a lot of meaning to this game. Um, first of all, before we talk about the game itself, if you're watching on the stream or you're watching after the fact, I got a great opportunity to, to pull out the old uh, Matt Hasselbeck uh, throwback jersey, right? Well, it's not a throwback jersey. It was the jersey he wore. Um, they're inducting Matt into the, the ring of honor tonight. And he he's so worthy of it. Um, his tenure here in Seattle obviously led a team um, to their first ever Super Bowl I was always a big Matt Hasselbeck fan and uh, not everybody was. If you recall back in those days, there was a lot of back and forth between Seahawk fans. Some people just thought he wasn't good enough. Um, my dad was one of them. <laughs> and uh, the arguments that he and I would have back and forth about Matt Hasselbeck were never ending. Uh, always the same too. A lot of groundhog day going on there. And, and, and the argument was one that, that still applies today in a lot of ways pick your player, pick your position, but especially at the quarterback position. And early on in Russell Wilson's career, there were a lot of people that made this argument, whereas now he's pretty universally thought of as a top five quarterback, which changes the conversation. But here's how it would usually go with my dad and Matt Hasselbeck. My dad would say he's not good enough, or he, he would be more pronounced than that. He stinks or he sucks. I'd say, okay, who would you rather have? And a lot of fans today will say, throw the season away, get a draft pick, take some kid, right? Which is always a gamble, always an unknown. That's a different argument. But inevitably, in this argument between my dad and I, he would name a couple other quarterbacks in the league, right? All top 10 quarterbacks. <laughs> I'd say, okay, how are you going to get him? You're not, right? So what are you left with? You're left with going with a young unknown, starting over, or a guy that's top 15, Pretty consistently, one of the better quarterbacks in the league, a guy that half of the other teams in the league would have loved to have had, and maybe five or six more teams that had quarterbacks you could argue were better than Hasselbeck might have preferred him too. Uh, he was a great teammate too. And I think that was pointed out uh, specifically. Uh, Pete Carroll was asked about Matt on Saturday in his press conference. And, and don't forget, Matt Hasselbeck was the quarterback in Pete Carroll's first season here in 2010. And that's another little storyline, I'm sure, why they picked this game. Monday Night Football against the Saints at home. Guess what? Last time Matt Hasselbeck ever suited up as a Seattle Seahawk was in the Beast Mode game. In fact, um, I, I meant to go back and check because my first thought was the last time he touched a football 
and took a snap as a Seahawk may have been um, that play. Although I think, did he hold on extra points? I don't think so. Um, but then I think we didn't we get the ball back at the end of that game and he did some victory formation when we got to kneel down. I, I didn't take the time to go back and check. But that was the last time he played here. And that was Carroll's first season. Um, the seven and nine season where they got in because they won the division to, despite that record and where Hasselbeck was uh, hurt at the end of the year and Charlie Whitehurst had to come in and, and win that game over the Rams to get him into the playoffs. And, and uh, it, there were some interesting comments from Hasselbeck this week about how he talked about Carroll in very warm tones, but he said, and I love this, he said, I didn't want to like him and what he was doing. You know, coming from college, rah, rah, all the positivity. Uh, he said, but I couldn't help it. I really liked him. And, and Carol had some things to say about Matt too. Um, and, and while he, uh, had some tongue in cheek things to say about how Matt's memory about how some things went, maybe weren't that clear. Um, and there was something in the tone of his voice and a couple of things he said that made me think that maybe early on Hasselbeck was a little bit of a pain in the ass, which I could totally see, but ultimately he won Carol over and I just thought it was worth playing this soundbite. Uh, this is Pete Carroll talking about Matt Hasselbeck and their their one season together. He was great at understanding the approach and the mentality of it, and he was promoted for it. He was a great um, uh, messenger and, and disciple in a sense. Uh, and, and when you have your quarterback uh, on board in that manner, it's really important, and it really makes a lot of uh, – uh, makes a lot of things. It facilitates a lot of the transition, you know, aspects of what's bringing in a, in a new culture to a program. And, and uh, he was good. He was good at it. And uh, he was a blast. I love coaching Matt. He was so much fun and, and uh, such a great competitor. And he tried so hard and cared so much and had a great sense of, uh, of awareness and also a sense of humor and all that stuff. He was a blast. So I'm, I'm, I'm so excited that he's, he's going in. I just think it's great. Touched on all the things that I loved about Hasselbeck. He was a good player, um, but he was just... He, to this day, might be my favorite post-game interview of, of any player I've ever seen, covered, followed. Uh, he was always brutally honest. Uh, he was always willing to take, um, take accountability and responsibility for his role in a, in a, in a loss. Um, always humble in, in his wins. And, and I always knew he'd be successful in television. Um, and, and he's as good as I expected him to be. Um, now, so he'll be inducted tonight in the ring of honor. So I'll be honoring him with, uh, with the throwback Jersey. Um, the game itself is bigger than some people seem to think it's going to be. Here's what I think's gotten lost. This is a point I want to make about tonight's game. <clears throat> and I apologize. Uh, I'm getting my butt kicked by allergies, um, the last week or so. So the voice has been a little rough. Um, Seahawks play the Saints tonight and, it's easy to think with the way things have unfolded over the last couple of weeks that, and I've heard a lot of this, the, the season's over. You even heard me uh, come on and do a um, couple little quick bites, or especially if you follow me on TikTok, um, some little quick reactions. Um, and it's the Emerald City Sportscast, if you're a TikToker. I don't know if that's, is that the proper way to conjugate that verb? Um, it's the Focus is so much on the division and how hard the division is. That they're two and four. Arizona's seven and zero. Oh, the Rams are six and one now. It's it's over. Russ is out for six to eight weeks. Season's over. Uh, not so fast, and for a couple of reasons. And honestly, I I was in that same boat, that same line of thought, where I talked on here about letting go of expectations. 
and and maybe just kind of taking each game, um, you know, as it is, and and just seeing how the season unfolds, but but not let it stress you out because the realistic viewpoint is to say that it's going to be a tough go, and that maybe this is, you know, this is just one of those years when they don't make the playoffs and they don't get nice things and they don't have a Super Bowl aspirations and all those things we were excited about because they they seem to have put a pretty solid roster together around Russ over the offseason. But a couple of things are happening right now. First of all, Mike Garofolo is reporting that Russ is going to have that pin taken out of his finger this week. Uh, Carroll wouldn't deny that necessarily, but he didn't confirm it either. Um, so we'll see. Well, as soon as that pin's out, then it's just a matter of the bone healing. Seahawks play Jacksonville on Sunday, then they get a bye, then they go to Green Bay. Um, we all thought it was crazy when when reports came out that Russ was targeting that game. Maybe not so much. So, But at the very least, maybe it's another week after that. But, but Russ ends up missing four games instead of eight. Don't forget that there are now three wildcard teams, three wildcard spots in each conference, not just two. That's huge. So let's take a look at the conference standings, shall we? <laughs> uh, and, and it all works in the Seahawks' favor. And remember, it's a 17-game season now, too. A lot more season ahead of us. Tampa, Green Bay, Dallas, all with commanding leads in their division. You can pretty much chalk up those three teams are going to win their divisions, right? Green Bay, after that horrific week one loss to this New Orleans Saints team, has looked terrific. Then in the NFC West, it's Arizona at 7-0, Rams at 6-1. Take your pick. One of those teams is going to win the division. The other one's going to be the number one wild card. Two wild card spots left. Look at the rest of the race. The Saints are 3-3. Three and three. Three and two coming into tonight's game. The Vikings are three and three. The Falcons are three and three. The Bears are three and four. The Panthers are three and four. The 49ers are two and four. The Washington football team is two and five. And there's your Seahawks at two and four. Even before tonight's game, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven teams vying for two spots. Let's look a little closer. Does anyone think the Bears are going to challenge for that spot? One of them? I mean, they look like a mess. The Carolina Panthers, after a 3-0 and start, have lost four straight. Bench Sam Darnold in the fourth quarter yesterday. Talking about trading for Deshaun Watson. They're a mess. 49ers lose again last night. They're 2-4. and four. That's an uphill battle. But you can include them in this argument. Because certainly we know how talented they are. Washington football team at 2-5 and five with the backup quarterback. And I think the real contenders here for these two spots realistically, are the Saints, the Vikings, and the Seahawks. Maybe the Falcons, because they seem to be finding themselves on offense under Arthur Smith. Getting Kyle Pitts involved, that dynamic rookie tight end with a veteran quarterback. Playing in a weak division. You know, they can rack up some wins. Um, So maybe they're involved as well. But what this does is it points out, A, Seahawks are still in this. 12 games left to play, 11 games left to play, and they're within a game of the two wildcard spots that are up for grabs. Now, they've lost to the Vikings already, so that's a tiebreaker that they don't have in their favor. But this is why tonight's game is so big. 
Seahawks can find a way to beat the Saints tonight in bad weather, right? Which could work to their advantage. Obviously, you know, I'm not going to get real deep into the keys of the game. They're going to have to slow down Alvin Kamara. The Saints are going to lean heavily on Kamara tonight. The Seahawks are going to have to contain him. They're also going to have to run the ball successfully against Saints team that's number five in the league, I think, against the run. It's going to be some combination of Alex Collins and Rashad Penny coming back tonight. Um, They're going to have to run the football to be successful in this kind of weather, uh, wet and blustery. But, you know, both teams have to play in the same conditions, right? But if they could somehow win this game tonight, find a way to avoid going 0-3 at home, which is mind-blowing because the crowds have been incredible. You know, then they're right there tied with the Vikings in the win column. And you're right in the thick of it. You know, ultimately, I think by the end of the season, this comes down to Seahawks, Saints, and Vikings, a three-team race for two spots. And the, the schedule gets more favorable for the Seahawks. You know, they got Jacksonville coming up next Sunday, then a bye. Then you might get Russ back. You still have games left against the Washington football team. The Lions and Bears are their last two home games of the season. They still get the Niners at home, and the Niners really haven't put things together. You look at the schedule, and it's it's favorable. And so think about it in terms of it doesn't really matter how you get into the playoffs, just be playing well. And all you have to do for an example of that is look to last season when the Seahawks win the NFC West at 12-4, and four, had a great season, but the Rams were playing better and certainly played better on that day. But they were the hotter team anyway going into the playoffs. The Seahawks had really scuffled on offense those last eight games. Making the playoffs this year is highly conceivable and possible. So don't give up on it yet. And tonight's game tells a lot. Even if they lose tonight, let's review. <laughs> Even if they would lose, that would put the Saints and Vikings at 3-3. Three and three. So they would essentially, if the playoffs started today, would be the two wildcard teams. And the Seahawks would be sitting there at 2-5. and five. A game out in the win column. With the other three win teams being the Panthers, Bears, and Falcons. Same argument. Now you're a game out of the race. You're two back of the Vikings and Saints, technically, because they would own tiebreakers. So don't overreact yet. You know, again, I'm trying to enter this game with with an open mind and just being curious. I want to see see how the offense responds and and see how Geno plays at home with an extra day to prepare and, and coming off the disappointment of the way the last two games ended and see if they can continue to, do some of those things running the football as well as they did in the second half against the Steelers yesterday. I am a little concerned because we've been here before, right, where the offense hasn't been as efficient as it should be, so they lean on the running game, and then we hear Pete Carroll start to say things like, that's the way we need to be. That's who we are. And he even implied pretty strongly that at halftime he he nudged, he, he let Shane Waldron know that we need to run the football better. So part of me is a little concerned they're going to come out tonight, especially in these conditions, and maybe err a little too much on the side of running the football, be a little too conservative. 
And ultimately, it's going to come down to how that defense plays. And and there were some signs last week that that secondary may be better, especially Trey Brown and how good he looked in his debut as a rookie at the other cornerback spot opposite DJ Reed. So let's see, let's see how tonight goes. But playoffs are still very, very much in the picture. All right. Uh, let's talk some baseball because uh, the World Series is about set to start tomorrow night, Wednesday night. Um, Braves and Astros. Fucking Astros. Just when we thought they were getting to the end of their window, right? And weren't going to be good anymore. And, and maybe they are. You know, we'll, we'll see how this goes over the next month. It'll definitely be a storyline that we'll cover because it affects the Mariners in a big way. Uh, Carlos Correa is about to be a free agent. Um, there's some other guys that... Um, whose contracts are expiring, they're going to have to make decisions about. And, and um, they got some good young players on that 26-man roster, but their farm system is not great. Um, so maybe this is kind of the last hurrah for the Astros. We'll see. Um, but go Braves. I, there was a poll on Twitter today, who do you want to see win? And my answer was Braves in four, because I don't want to see the Astros win. So we'll get to revel in their loss. But I want it over as quickly as possible so the offseason can commence so that Jerry DePoto can get busy. But before we talk about that, uh, some some really cool news today. And I don't know, it, it may never have any kind of impact on the team that we see on the field. But Ken Griffey Jr. is now officially a part owner of the Seattle Mariners. The team announcing today that he is joining uh, the Mariners partnership group. Uh, we don't know uh, to what extent, how big a percentage He's going to own what his role will be. He's been a special consultant to the team for the last few years now anyway. He's in Seattle a lot. He attends a lot of games. He was at the Kraken game the other night. Um, he's still very much a part of this community. Not sure if he still owns a home here or not, but he loves it here. Um, and I, I can take this only as good news, even if it's just window dressing, right? Because... You know, the offseason, the, the end of the offseason, well, the offseason as a whole, was really an embarrassment for the Mariners. It started with Jerry DePoto saying they were going to be aggressive and, and spend and add some pieces last offseason, and then we didn't see that happen. And then we find out later that Kevin Mather had gotten into the mix, uh, the former president, and convinced John Stanton not to spend money. Not yet. Not last offseason because they were still feeling the effects of all the money lost during the pandemic or the revenue lost. And then there was the Mather thing itself when it all came out and what a, what a POS he was. Terrible human being and someone who shouldn't be leading people any kind of an organization, let alone uh, a sports team that employs a lot of minorities and has diversity. Um, so there was that. So having Ken Griffey Jr. come back and, and be part of the ownership group, I think it's, it's a great PR move. It's, great, it's a great optic. It could be more than that. It could be a sign that Ken Griffey Jr. really likes the, the direction and, and the things that are happening with this organization and is willing to uh, attach his name to it in a much more significant way. Um. But it also brings me to this point, and this is one that I've tried to make, and, and I've been guilty of making this mistake before because emotions get in the way, right? But don't always be so quick to overreact to news. Uh, 
We saw this at the trade deadline or right before when the Kendall Graveman trade. And then all the emotions in that clubhouse. And when the anonymous player, Kyle Seeger, came out and said, you know, that, oh, it's just them not wanting to win. It's same old Mariners. And that's it. There were fans that thought it was terrible and that DePoto should be fired. When the Mather stuff happened, so many of you, maybe not you, because if you're listening to the podcast, you may kind of have the same mindset I do. Uh, so many people claiming to be Mariner fans were calling for a house cleaning after the Mather thing. Right? Throw the baby out with the bath water. Is that how that saying goes? So many people wanted to. Poto, Service, Andy McKay, the entire organization fired. House cleaning. 2018, when Lorena Martin came out and made those allegations about racism, other issues in the Mariners organization, everybody was calling for just hit the reset button, fire them all. Sometimes there's more to the story. Right? Mariners ended up settling earlier this year and resolving that Martin situation, but the depositions never happened. Lawsuits never went forward. Sometimes it can be one person that's pissed off or one bad apple. Kevin Mather. And now we have a lot more to go on, right? Because we've seen a season now. During which, once again, I think Jerry DePoto and Scott Service have proven themselves to be pretty damn good at their jobs. Right? Service holding that clubhouse together through that, finishing strong, winning 90 games when they had no business winning 90 games, keeping things together through COVID shutdowns when they lost the entire bullpen for about two weeks, player injuries, not having Kyle Lewis, losing James Paxson the first week having to patch the rotation together, having to evolve and adapt that, that bullpen as the season went along because of injuries and trades. They might be pretty good at their job. There's a, there's a lot of evidence that they are. And also that they're pretty good dudes, that players like playing in this organization, that they're building a pretty decent culture. If you didn't get a chance to read Mitch Hanniger's piece in the Players' Tribune last week, I urge you as a Mariner fan to Google it and read it. This was not, I mean, the Players' Tribune is a, is a forum for players to express themselves in first person and write their own stories. And Hanniger spoke at length, not just about his struggles to get through the two injury-filled seasons and how great it was to come back and be healthy again and be part of a winner, but how much he truly cared about this organization and even name-dropped John Stanton, Jerry DePoto, Scott Service. Clearly is a guy that wants to be here. And... And if you ever thought that, and, and you know, I've been back and forth on this over the last couple of years, that maybe Hanniger's value is better to trade as a trade ship. Not now. you got to have a couple guys like that. You're going to let Kyle Seeger walk. You have to keep a guy like Mitch Hanniger who truly wants to be here and can impart that on the younger guys. And, and DePoto said on his radio show earlier this week that he, he implied that, you know, well, he, he stated very strongly they would like to extend Mitch Hanniger and keep him here long term. He thinks Mitch wants to be here long-term, and he implied that those efforts may have been discussed. The reason it's important to, to keep this in perspective 
uh, about not overreacting to things is because we're about to enter into one of the craziest off seasons that Mariner fans have probably ever seen. They're going to go after some big fish in free agency. Not the $300 million 10-year contract type big fish, not Carlos Correa. DePoto talked about uh, guys adaptable on defense, but also that could help with the infield group. Um, specifically, he name-checked Javier Baez and Marcus Simeon. Uh, John Morosi yesterday on the radio here locally said um, he thought Simeon made a lot of sense and they would take a shot at him. He's a West Coast guy. He's from the Bay Area. And unless the Giants want to throw a bunch of money at him, uh, that the, the Mariners might have a good shot. Um, and that a guy like that that can play, that moved to second last year um, to accommodate the Blue Jays, uh, would probably do so again with the with the Mariners as they're committed to J.P. Crawford, I think. Rightly so. But he could also play third. Uh, Trevor Story was brought up by Morosi as well as a guy that's um, shown that he can play some third. And if he's willing to move off a shortstop, uh, that he might be a really good bounce-back candidate as well, coming off kind of a down year. Um, Baez, not so sure about, but DePoto specifically mentioned him. But I think it brings another name into play as well, and that's, and we've talked about him before, it's former Mariner Chris Taylor, who just had, uh, coming off a real struggles at the end of the season, really put it together in the playoffs, had the three-home-run game to keep minute in Game 5, I believe, um, before the Braves end up closing out that series. But Chris Taylor's a guy that, Remember, coming up with the Mariners, he was a shortstop only. Um, and then with the Dodgers, they converted him to center field for a good long while, and he's played a significant amount of second base too. I mean, think about that kind of versatility where a guy can play second, could be your everyday second baseman essentially. Toro would move to third in that scenario presumably, and then but can play center field too? When the team really lacks a true center fielder right now, I think that's something they're going to be looking pretty hard at here this offseason. But my, my point about the offseason that I really want to make is there's going to be some crazy moves. There's going to be free agent signings that maybe in a vacuum don't make a lot of sense or don't appear to you to be a, a big enough fix-it move. And there are going to be trades that are going to freak some people out too because we've all gotten attached now to the prospect names as DePoto and his staff have taken this Mariners farm system in, from last place, dead last in all of the rankings. Consensus, worst farm system in the league. And now, depending on which ranking you look at, it's one or two. And we've fallen in love with and gotten attached to a lot of those names. Some of those names are going to get traded. And they might get traded for names that aren't household names that you don't know very well. And here's here's something we see time and time and time again. And again, I'll call myself on this. I've been guilty of it too. If we don't know something, I think this is human nature. If we don't know something, we assume it to be shit. Right? They go out and trade Cal Raleigh and Brandon Williamson or Cattell Marte, or Emerson Hancock, for some guy named Joe Wilson that you've never heard of. I promise you we'll see it all over Twitter. Who the hell is Joe Wilson? This is a terrible trade. DePoto should be fired. Same old Mariners. You're going to see it. They're going to make a same old Mariners reaction type move this offseason. And then <laughs> you're going to Google who Joe Wilson is. And you're going to go, oh, 
shit. I had no idea he was in the rotation for the Marlins the last couple of years, and he's only 22 years old. And he strikes out 12 per nine, and he throws 99. He's got nasty breaking stuff, and all his peripherals look good. And spin rate's great, and he's, he's 22, and he's under contract, and he has a potential to be an ace. Wow. I didn't even know about him. It could be those kinds of moves. There could also be moves where you just don't love the player, but then you see, because you immediately see him, okay, we just, we just traded for a second baseman. Or we just traded for an outfielder. We don't need an outfielder. We got Julio coming, and we got Kelnick out there, and we got Fraley, and we got Hanniger, and we got Lewis coming back. And Why do we need an outfielder? And then you see within the context of how they put the roster together that it makes more sense. That the guy just hits and he gets on base and he can he can also play a little first base and they're going to use the D eight spot creatively and maybe they move an outfielder. So try not to judge off season moves made this winter in a vacuum and see them all in context. And then we'll look at this roster come next February as we enter into spring training and we'll see if we have reasons to be excited about it. Uh, let's do this. Uh, let's talk some Cougar football. Uh, they lose on Saturday to BYU. Very closely matched teams. Very close contest. BYU's a good football team. They moved to 5-2 and two with the win. Uh, a two-point win over the Cougs in Pullman. Uh, BYU's third win over a Pac-12 team this season. It obviously capped off um, a crazy week in Pullman. Um, wow, that was the that was the fight song version. Let's just hear a little bit more of that. This is what I found on iTunes. That is an old timey version. That was like a barbershop quartet version of the Cougar fight song. I'm gonna have to keep looking and see if I can find something a little more contemporary. Um, it was fascinating to watch the game, and, and I thought. I thought they looked prepared. They didn't come out too high. They didn't come out flat. I thought given everything with the week with obviously Nick Rolovich a week ago today being fired for refusing to follow the state's vaccine mandate. And not just that. You've heard me talk about it at length. It was the way he handled it. I don't know if it would have saved his job if he had told Schultz and Chun up front about his vaccine stance before he released his own statement in July that this is what he was going to do without consulting his bosses. Um. I don't know if it would have saved his job. Um, if anything short of actually getting the vaccine because you, you're the highest paid state employee and you work for a medical research facility and the president of the university is a scientist, like uh, maybe he couldn't have. Um, but in this kind of a side note, I, th- I think he did as much damage to his future career choices by how he handled it and not just getting the shot. I think there was a way that he could have stuck to his principles and I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think his principles are contrived. My flat-out opinion, I don't think they're religious at all. He's never, he's never appeared to live his life in a devoutly religious way in any outwardly shape or form, and, and some people are more private about that. But I've met the guy in person, didn't come across <laughs> as someone who was devoutly religious. Let me just put it that way. Uh, I think it was political, but he just knew there'd be so much backlash if he said that, that he's an extreme 
conservative. You know where I'm going with that, right? Um, but I think there's a way he could have stuck to his stated principles, not gotten the shot, and not done as much damage to his family and his future earning potential and ability to get another significant job of some kind. But he didn't handle it. He didn't handle it as a leader. He didn't handle it like a head coach should. He could have handled it better and still done what he states he believes in. Regardless, he's gone. It was the right thing to do, in my opinion, for the university. I think he painted him into a corner. He called their bluff. He thought, there's no way, especially coming off three straight wins. They're not going to fire me, and they fired him. Um, so I've been given a lot of thought to the, to the coaching search. First of all, let's look at a couple options here. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. I see a lot of this because it was also announced last week that LSU is going to part ways with Ed Orgeron. Won the national championship 2019, right? So much. Even in the Facebook Cougar diehard Cougs groups. Should we hire this guy? Let's hire this guy. Let's bring Orgeron on. Please stop now and forever. Do a little research on Ed Orgeron and what's happened at LSU in the last couple of years. Despite the fact they won the national championship with an elite quarterback and elite talent all around him in 2019. He's a train wreck. He's a bad person. He's a terrible dude. No, 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 no. Also, I don't want any retreads. Right? I don't want to talk about Rick, the Rick Neuheisels of the world. Also, there's the pipe dreams, right? Chris Peterson. It's not going to happen. So I think you look at guys like Rolovich who are um, head coaches who have shown ability and, and had some success at smaller universities where the Pac-12 would have some appeal and they would want that WSU would be attractive to them. And then you look at the typical, the younger up and coming coordinators, guys like um, uh, Zach Hill at Arizona State, um, guys with no track record. It's really hard to judge if they're going to be good head coaches or not. Um, uh, Texas Tech just fired their coach today. Mark Hill is that his name? And he was a he was a hot shot coordinator that was. A lot of universities were coveting, and he lasted a couple of years, and he's fired already. So those guys are a roll of the dice. To me, when you lay out the best-case scenario, I want someone younger. I want someone dynamic, someone that represents the university well. And I think, make no mistake about it, there's going to be a tremendous emphasis placed on that in this coaching search. Pat Chun, who I think is terrific at his job, really represents the university well. Isn't probably going to be there long. He's going to, he's turned down some better, what some people would consider better AD jobs already, but he, he's still climbing the ladder. He's, I think he's embarrassed. He's pissed off at how the Rolovich hiring turned out. He's taking accountability for that on himself publicly, which I like. He wants to make sure he gets this next one right. And this next person needs to not just win some football games, uh, and graduate kids and, and be competitive on the field and all that, but needs to needs to represent the university well. Mike Leach won a lot of games while he was at WSU, but there were times that I wasn't all that proud to say he was my head coach. So that's two straight coaches that have not been great for public relations. So let's get a guy that is. Let's also get a guy that that 
isn't job hopping that, that may want to stay there for a little while. And someone that minimizes the damage of a recruiting season that's already going to take a hit even if you make a change, even if you hire the right guy because there's a transition and trying to play catch up on recruiting, at least for the early December period, you're not going to get in on a lot of those guys. You're going to be scrambling, probably scouring the transfer portal, trying to piece together a class for 2022. Let's try to minimize that, but let's also try to keep as many kids in place because there's a lot of good young talent on this roster. And in particular, you have to find a way to keep Jaden Delora in Pullman. Now, make no mistake, and I wanted to make this point about the BYU game, too. Um, Again, well-prepared, especially in light of everything that happened. They played well. There was no blame to go around. A lot of times after a loss, people want to place blame. It was a coach. It was a fourth-down decision. It was the defense didn't get it done. It was this player, that player. A lot of people are saying, well, we missed the extra point. If we don't do that, then when we score that touchdown with four minutes left, we kick instead of going for two. It's tied. We go to overtime. That's not how football works. (laughs) <laughs> it's not how the universe works. You miss an extra point early in the third quarter. Now it's a seven-point game, seven, eight-point game. Things may be called differently after that. Things may happen differently after that. Um, I thought Saturday just simply came down to when BYU needed to make a play, they made three or four of them, especially on third down. A lot of catches in traffic and diving catches and one foot drags out of bounds and, and spectacular plays when it looked like the Cougs had him beat, you know, getting pressure on the quarterback in his face. He makes a spectacular play, a quarterback that really wasn't very good. They made those plays. We didn't. Jaden Delora wasn't really that good on Saturday. He missed, he missed some things. Threw a pick in the end zone to, to kill a, a promising drive on their second drive, I think, where he just overthrew a guy. Um, missed some guys that were wide open for touchdowns. Um, it was just one of those games where sometimes you just don't make enough plays, right? That being said, when I look at the coaching search, I think there's one best case scenario. One thing that I think if it happens, and there's a good chance it'll happen, that Cougar fans should say, okay, I can believe in this. And that's for Jake Dickert to get the job. I like everything about the guy. He's 38 years old. He's a good defensive mind. We've seen that. These are the. This is as good a Cougar defense as we've seen on the Palouse in 15 years. Since those, like that Copper Bowl team and Mark Fields and those guys. and Secondary that can cover after years of that being an Achilles heel. Running linebackers that can run a defensive line that can really get after the quarterback. And some of those guys are young. So he's a good defensive mind. He would keep continuity. I think players like him. And then he stepped up to the podium in his first opportunity as a head coach the other day. And he absolutely hit a grand slam home run. Said everything right. Everything I want to hear as a Cougar alum. Said it with the right tone. There's a passion there. Seems extremely genuine little added benefit that he's a, a small town guy and went out of his way to state that, that I like, I feel more comfortable in smaller college communities than like this. He's not renting in Pullman. He bought a house. If he can show over the next four games that he has ability as a head coach, that is the best case scenario. Look, there's other guys I like. I like Jay Norvell at Nevada. 
He has a long, successful coaching history. And at Nevada, he's built a really strong program and a tough place to win. And by all accounts, he's a, the character is solid. Turns out good kids. He's 58 years old. Dickert's got him by 20 years. I would just, I would be fine. I would be happy if we hired a guy like Jay Norvell. But I'm rooting for Jake Dickert to get the job. Now, how's he going to accomplish that? Does he have to get us to a bowl? They got to win two more games. Arizona State and Oregon on the road is a tough, tough haul over the next couple weeks. That BYU loss might be really crushing. But then you come home to play Arizona, maybe the worst team in the Pac-12. And then you go to Seattle to play the Apple Cup after a year of not having the Apple Cup against a team that their fan, the fan base is questioning their head coach. Wondering if there should be a change there. They haven't lived up to expectations. So maybe for the first time in 10 years, that game could be evenly matched. Because you've heard me say before, here before, as long as Mike Leach had stayed in Pullman, they were never going to compete. If, certainly, if he pulls off a shocker and you, you beat a team you're not supposed to beat, you, Arizona State, I think, is a 15-point favorite this week. You beat Arizona State or you beat Oregon, certainly. That... That obviously is a feather in his cap. But even if you lose both those games, but you play competitive, you play tough, you belong on the field, you come home, you beat Arizona, you go win the Apple Cup, then I think you announce that next week that he's the head coach. And then you just, you're off and running. Recruiting continues. Hopefully that keeps Delora in-house. Then the question is, you know, staff. And does he stick with the offensive coordinator uh, currently that's left over from Rolovich's staff, or does he go out and get another guy? Um, I'm rooting for Dickert to get the job, and I think as Cougar fans, you should be too, because I that would be the best case. I'm not saying he's hands down that I think he's the best guy for the job. I think he's on a path to be a head coach. We'll find out over the next four weeks if he's ready yet. And if he shows that he is, I'm saying that's the best case scenario. It's the best situation for the program. I really believe that. Here, let's listen to this old-timey Cougar fight song again. <laughs> As we head out, because I don't talk enough Cougs on here. I think we're going to be talking some Cougar basketball over the next couple of months, too, because they look like um, they look like a potential NCAA tournament team, and that could be a lot of fun for the first time in quite a while. That's going to do it for the show today. Uh, thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter, if you don't already, at Seahawks Forever. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's where you can watch these live feeds. You can also see them, these shows in video version. They upload immediately uh, after the live feed on YouTube. Certainly whatever podcast platform you're listening to the show on at the moment, please subscribe. That way you get notifications whenever there's a new episode. I know I haven't done a lot of shows lately, but uh, we'll try to change that over the next few weeks, especially as we head into Mariners offseason. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll get some guests on here to talk some Mariner baseball as well. I'm Dan Viennes. Uh, if you're going to the game tonight, be safe, have fun. Um, shoot me a message if you want to. If you're hanging out in Touchdown City but before the game, come say hi to me and my buddy Danny, who are going to be... I'm taking a buddy of mine that I work with to his first ever Seahawks game. Uh, that's going to be as fun for me, I think, as, as it'll be for him. He's a diehard Seahawks fan. He's never been to a game. And he gets to, his first game is going to be on Monday Night Football. And watch Hasselbeck get indu- inducted into the league... Um, uh, the Ring of Honor, the League of Honor, the League of Heroes. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening in. Thanks for watching. Uh, again, I am on TikTok now uh, as well. Look for, uh, if you're on there, the Emerald City Sportscast. Um, I've done some quick reaction stuff on there. I think I'll use that platform as such. Um, and uh, maybe even do these lives over there as well once I figure that part of it out. Um, anyway, I appreciate you watching. I appreciate you listening. Uh, until next week, remember, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you are always right. See you next week. <laughs>